Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as how reprehensible is torture? Is Warlock Daddy? And are we sure bards are funny? <laughs> I mean, have you seen Titus Andronicus? The essence of sorcery is blasphemy, through will and power. Every mage usurps dominion over the laws of creation from the gods above and below. Extract from The Most Noble Art of Magic by Dread Emperor Sorceress. Before even talking about the chapter we're getting to, let's take a look at things that we often overlook. The epigraph is what I care about here because it's an epigraph about magic being blasphemy. And we meet two very important characters in this chapter. One who I think is no more than casually blasphemous. He's the warlock of the Dread Empire. He's necessarily not exactly a pious man in the sense that the Dread Emperor is writing about, but he doesn't concern himself too heavily with full usurpation of a godhead. But his little boy, his big, tall little boy, he has a he certainly has an arc that, if you look at it the right way, it includes elements that one could interpret as being less than entirely unblasphemous, I would argue. I think that's a pretty bold stance to take with uh, our, our, our dear friend. We'll, uh, you know, we'll watch that arc as it develops, and maybe end of story we'll come back to this idea that he's somewhat blasphemous and, and see how it pans out see, see where we land at that point because i think you may be looking at the the story with some what's the opposite of rose tinted glasses uh bl blue tinted tinted glasses well a tint by any other name would wow we're uh, so, we're really gonna be stuck on that today huh no actually instead today we're going to be talking about visit to a wizard tower uh catherine and her little orc friend Meet a flying, fire-breathing pig. Meet the apprentice who's been working on it. Meet the warlock who's been working on it. Have a chat. Find out that there might be a little more namedness going on than you'd think. 
and plan for a luncheon. It's one of those chapters where important stuff is discussed and nothing happened. It's very good. It's a great chapter that, yeah, a summary of this chapter can't do it justice because it's a chapter about people talking to each other. So uh, I think the best thing to do would just be to dive in uh, and get into the details where, as the saying goes, the devil is, which is something that Kat is concerned about briefly. Uh, they run across the thing that startled her in the previous chapter, and it turns out to be, you know, a, a pig with wings that breathes fire. And Kat assumes, Kat assumes that it is uh, an extra planar thing, a devil or a demon. And she has the thought, hopefully it was just a devil, because if the mages had managed to bring a demon through, this was going to get unpleasant. And uh, yeah, Kat's right. If this had been a demon, who boy, rough chapter coming up. However, for that reason, narratively, there's no way that this could be a demon, both from our perspective as the reader and also, frankly, from hers. Kat's too important in race generally and, you know, thereby to the Black Knight, who's, you know, the main villain right now of Colernia, if you want to. I think that might be stretching some things, but eh, close enough. There's no chance she's just going to stumble into a demon and have her story be cut short right now. There's no buildup. There's no warning. There's a demon. There's never, there hasn't been any, uh, the warlock's been locked in his tower and dark magics have been leaking out this whole time. And we're all concerned and the water has been turning spoil, whatever. There's no demon here. Maybe a devil. Sure. But the, just the way that this story works where you can actually rely on narrative buildup at in universe means that, don't worry, Kat, you're going to be fine. I initially did not consider the presence of the warlock or the apprentice when you were speaking. And when you said that a demon would be a huge problem, but didn't focus on the devil being the biggest issue, I remind you how rough the initial diabolic engagements are in the coming arcs. Mm -hmm. But with warlock there, okay. A, I don't care what devil's around. Right. A single devil is not going to cause a problem for the warlock <laughs> it's just especially one that he summoned so that he knows it's there it doesn't have the drop on him you know he'd be fine yeah frankly warlock's one of the people who i would be willing to think might be able to handle a demon in the circumstance but again demons you know yeah they're they're a little funky as they say it's this is a conversation for another time but i'm going to use this to make a very forced transition. The thing about demons in this that's so cool is how there are so many types of them. They're not just, you know, raging hellfire, burning creatures, glorified heaters, if you will. Oh boy. Okay. So <laughs> uh Kat is when this thing starts breathing fire at her, she ducks behind her shield. Sure, makes sense. Uh just a quick note, she describes it as a heater shield. Uh and I don't a heater shield is an interesting choice. It's a pretty, I don't know, late shield in our world, like historically speaking. It's not the kind of shield that the Legions of Terror model, the Roman legions, would have used. It's it's a tiny little triangle, basically. Uh, I don't know if this is like an officer shield at this point that Kat's carrying ceremoniously, because I know for a fact that she's using the infantry tower shields when she's on the field. It's just weird to imagine Kat walking around on foot with a, you know, a late medieval knight's tiny little <laughs> smaller version of a kite shield and hiding behind that. It's just a, a funny little detail there. 
about the about the equipment that cats running around with these days funny detail but not a devilish one because we are dealing with a pig a pig that has a mouthful of teeth it's unclear if it's unusually toothy or not Catherine sees it open a maw filled with teeth okay pigs are toothy but it breathes fire which heats her shield which is what she was talking about Ah. and it has a nifty little detail about itself too because it has dainty little wings that are way too small to allow the creature to actually fly. A bumble pig. No, the bumbling is a different... We'll, we'll talk uh, about the bumbling later. Yep, my bad. According to all known laws of aviation, a pig cannot fly. <laughs> yes. And this is a true fact. Jerry Seinfeld should write the film adaptation of A Practical Guide to Evil. Interesting. Interesting stance to take. Wow. It's important to have really bad takes about really bad comedians. I said it, and I'm not taking it back because I'm right. Yeah, I mean, uh, nobody on this podcast will disagree with you. So this is not going to be a trend yet, but within this arc, we're going to have a little bit of a trend about the magics that a person we're about to meet, who could it be, is doing. A workshop door bursts open, a man hisses out an incantation. The word man here is, uh, it's stretching a bit. But this man throws out a hand towards the pig, and a muzzle of ice forms around the creature's mouth, and it, the creature, let out a muted squeal of panic. It tried to make a run for it, but the ice spread in slender but solid lines across its body, restraining its feet in solid manacles that stopped it within moments. We've got an ice theme. It's opened. We'll get more later. Talk to me in a few weeks. I look forward to it. And then we'll find out who this man is, except I was not able to tell from the first words he said because they didn't feel like who I learned him later to be. Yeah, the uh, man slash boy, the person who's here, uh, complains about this creature, the pig, getting out. uh, Specifically, to quote him, just before we get company. And follows that up with, you'd be Lady Squire, I take it. Uh, You know, we know who this is. This is our our good pal Z's. We love him. Uh, He's concerned about company he this isn't a i'm frustrated that you are here when i'm working but rather uh oh this might be a little impolite to have a fire-breathing pig running around right before company arrives he's he's young he's near his father so maybe he's you know behaving i guess of it but it it definitely is a, a strange comment from from our boy i would be very willing to believe you'd be lady squire i take it being a very practiced thing he's learned here in the tower this is how we're going to greet people my father insists upon it i don't see the point but it makes things work easily so who cares oh sure the company line yeah he didn't have time to have that coached and he doesn't he wouldn't he cares about the company i'm sure because it's relevant to everything but like he would never stress over it he's got more important things to worry about he does there is a fire-breathing pig. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> if I were hosting company and I had a, in my fire-breathing pig abomination ran out and attacked them, I would be greatly embarrassed. But I would also be tending to the pig before apologizing. Right, right. I'd be mortified that my fire-breathing pig got near my company. But you'd be you know, mortified. They'd be mortally wounded. You know. I, unless they have a heater shield. Again, the pig will heat the shield for them. Don't worry about it. Unless they have a very hot shield, right? So, speaking of hot people, sons, there uh, we go. 
this stranger is tall, even for Soninke, but that doesn't matter. The stranger was tall, even for Soninke. Blah, blah, blah. This one was built like a scholar. His hair was long and split in a dozen braids, threaded with trinkets of silver and precious stones, many reflecting light in unnatural ways. Very interesting description there. I'm curious about them. We'll never learn more. The gray robes he was decked in went all the way to his ankles, covered with a leather apron whose pockets were filled with tools I didn't recognize. Now that's fun. They're, it's another piece of... Let's see how magic works in this world that can be different than a lot of fantasy worlds we're accustomed to. We talked before about how many tabletop RPGs have forbidden casters from wearing armor, or in certain cases, or to certain degrees, for various excuses. We've seen, and we've seen here, that they're heavily armored, though not as heavily. Interesting. But here, a magic user is wearing an apron with tools. Magic, though a scholar's pursuit, is not white-collar work. Not even, uh, yes, I'm going to sit around in my tower and ponder, ponder my orb, stroke my beard, and then I will say some magic words and wave my hand, and that's the whole of magic. No, they're tools. They're craftspeople. I think that's fun. It is fun. And I think, I mean, I do know that we have different types of magic in this setting, obviously. Like, that's a, a pretty, a very common talking point when Z's is on screen. Like, he loves to loves to chat about that. Um, but there's also, it seems like, different layers. Because when they're doing, for instance, battlefield magic, they're not out there crafting the spell with tools. They're, you know, doing magic words and hand-waving and magic stuff. You know how it is. So, I'm sure there's occasionally, like, a focus or something, but sure. that does not undermine your point. Right. It's it's there's There's layers. There's the research layer, which requires tools. There's the practical layer, where you're operating on a pig, maybe, where you need tools. But then when you are ready to use something, kind of have it without the the need of a leather apron filled with tools. It's, it's, it's cool to see the, not the division, because I obviously I don't think that this is separate from what he does actively in other, other places, but the tiers of magic, where it's the, the base it's built upon, it's cool to see these things. Also, he's wearing gray robes. Do we have to dislike him now? I forget exactly where we draw the line Ooh. there. Well, I am sure that they are simply gray because they are that color. They're not gray with the dust of the road, or okay. even gray with the accumulated filth of being, you know, a savant wizard who doesn't care about his clothing because this is Warlock's son. He couldn't get right. away with that. So what you're saying is we just don't like people who have dirty clothes. Well, yes. Perfect. I, the entirety of Practical Guide exists to teach you the importance of hygienic... Uh, hygiene doesn't... That feels like uh, filth-based class distinction. I think... I think you're right, and I don't think anybody will disagree with that assessment. Uh, and then we do find out that this man... Oh, wait. Boy, I corrected mentally. For As for all his height, he couldn't have been more than a year older than me. Was rather plain for a named. And yeah, we, we find out he had spectacles. We get a little bit of a yeah. little bit of information about him here. Thick eyebrows, dark brown eyes, pair of spectacles, fleshy lips that he often bit. Um but the important thing here, I think, you know, it's great to have a description of this character. We'd like to pay attention to that when they first show up. But Kat describes him as being rather plain for a named, which is an important distinction because, as we know, the appearance of uh, of a named 
is based uh, to some extent on their self-conception, or entirely on their self-conception, which is in turn based on their birth appearance, I guess. Mm, birth is probably not it. They don't all look like infants, uh, which is in turn based on their appearance before they had a name. Um, so since it's based in on self-conception, uh, I think we know that Zs doesn't particularly maybe think about his own appearance. Like he has a self-conception, but it's not something he probably dwells on, which is why he ends up plain. He's not, you know, uh, Ubwa, who is beautiful because she is and like that self-conception is like this feedback loop or militia where they they have this beauty that is at least partially based on their based on their name for z's that's just not the case it's just neat to see that that they're you know it's very in character for <laughs> as much as it wouldn't make sense in most stories it is in character for z's to be plain looking you know it's neat to see i really appreciate that especially when we consider that he's not unadorned. He's got dozens of braids with trinkets of silver and precious stones, some of which reflect light unnaturally. And he's rather plain. His, I guess, metaphysically, diegetically true self isn't gussied up, though he's relatively decorated. But also, I appreciate that, yeah, in the context, there are two people they're expecting to meet here. But it's also, oh, it's a wizard's tower. Who knows if there are apprentice mages lowercase, apprentice mages running around or students or servants or, you know, constructs. I don't know. But she knows immediately? No. Rather plain, for a named. This is one of those named ones. I can just tell. Because Catherine would never miss a name around her. She wouldn't, she couldn't travel with someone and not realize they're named. Can you imagine? Interesting take, once again. Uh, we'll come back to that, I assume. And by Very assume, shortly. I mean I mean, no, yes, we will. <laughs> in about three paragraphs? Right, in about three paragraphs. Regardless, though, uh, yes, she assumes he has a name or knows he does, but he confirms it pretty quickly. She acknowledges, that's me, Lady Squire. I agreed, and you'd be apprentice. The boy introduced himself with a half smile. But you can call me Masego. Catherine, I replied easily, and supervising that poor table behind me is Adjutant Hakram of the 15th. Notice how... And I don't think it really amounts to anything, but there are no titles given, or no titles used, rather. We know everybody's titles. But the apprentice gives his first name. He'll be called by his first name. The squire gives her first name. She'll be called by her first name. And this is Adjutant Hakram of the 15th. Lowest rank, I guess, highest used title in the, yeah, it's the highest used title in the introduction. Apprentice gives his title, but it says he but offers his name. So it's not a used title. I'm going with this. And I think that's fun. Sure. He doesn't introduce himself as I'm the son of Warlock and Cat doesn't say I command the 15th or, uh, you know, study under black or anything like that. They're, they're more interested in like, hey, I'm, I'm Masego, I'm Catherine. And they move on from there. But yeah. I am the Lady Squire, Catherine Foundling, General <laughs> of the 15th Legion, Apprentice of the Black Knight of the... Empire of the Dread Empire of Praise, leader of the Legions of Terror, which is a shame. We, uh, then, a, a, yep. After after this brief introduction, uh, the apprentice notices that, uh, hey, Hakram has a name forming. News to you know everybody else in the room, and on a first read through, what? Catherine missed it. <laughs> there it is, and on a first read through, also news to the reader. Um, the reveal of where Hawkram is going is great because it's 
so casual from Z's because obviously he assumes that Cat knows and doesn't isn't making a big deal about it. For him, it's a curiosity. It's an interesting data point, I guess. Uh, but he he goes on to say, and this is something that I'd sort of forgotten about by the end of the series. But uh, the apprentice says, "I have, however, never heard of it, adjutant, turning into a name before." So uh, this name that Hawkram gets, this is maybe the first time that it is a name rather than just a role that's filled really well, lowercase role. So, you know, that's cool that he's not necessarily the epitome of it, although obviously he is, uh, but he's around at the time that this story is coming to a head. You know, seeing a new name is interesting and has a lot of implications, I think. But, uh, you know, for us, it's just, Hawkroom becoming who he's supposed to be. The first time I read Book 2, Chapter 1, Supply, which is the first time he's called by that title, mm-hmm. I wondered at first, oh, look, a capitalized single noun. Is this... Did he get a name between chapters? And no, he didn't. Okay. And then I put that aside. And then Apprentice just came in and said, no, no. Turns out you were right the whole time. And that was the moment I knew that E.E. E. and I were on the same page about everything, and he would never be able to surprise me. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think we had a different experience with the uh, with the work our first time through. You know, that doesn't surprise me either. Really, you are just impossible to surprise, and therefore better than everybody else? No, you're thinking of The Apprentice. Ah, sorry. Hakram politely tries to correct him. I'm an orc, sir. My officer spoke carefully. We don't really do the name thing. To which he gets in, inaccurate. Names were fairly common in the steps before the meets and occupation. Catherine says, that's the better part of 2,000 years ago. And the apprentice seemed utterly indifferent to that fact, much to my irritation. And I appreciate that because that is how all scholars are all the time. It does not matter for a second what any real world anything is. When they are in research and theory mode, they are wholly indifferent to the facts of the matter, only the details? Or they're indifferent to anything but the facts of the matter? They're indifferent to all facts that are not directly of the matter. They're indifferent to the truth, only care about the facts. Honestly, though, and that's why scholarship's really fun. (laughs) But don't worry, 2,000 years ago or not, Hakram may not come into a name, as, uh, as Z's points out. It's still in a nascent form. And then he goes on to say, if it makes you feel any better, you might get yourself killed before it turns into anything concrete. And we were talking about his uh, introduction sounding not exactly like the Z's we know and love from later in the story. This is him. This is, this is, there he is. <laughs> he's, he's who we remembered. From anyone else in the story, this would be such a rudeness, such a, or perhaps such a dry acknowledgement of dire situations. Here, that's kind of him. I'm grateful that he's making an effort, uh, though Catherine is not yet accustomed to him as we all are, and says it was becoming apparent that social skills were not one of Masego's no doubt plentiful talents. We'll get there. But we, uh, yeah. Cat <laughs> uh, says that she'd never heard of an adjutant before, uh, which, right, was pretty much just confirmed by uh, by the apprentice. But she then goes on to tell us again we're at that internal thought process that's for our benefit uh, on screen here or in the text here. But there was also the fact that for the first time in a millennia and a half, a green skin was coming into a role. And uh, kind of a minor thing, she's mostly right. 
you know, they haven't had a name before this. But I think it's worth mentioning something that uh, that Masego just hinted at. Uh, that may not be the case. It could be that there were other orcs uh, that had the chance to have a name or that were coming into a role at some point, and then they died on the battlefield or were assassinated by uh, by the Dread Emperor or Dread Empress, because, frankly, if you were aware of an orc coming into a name, probably in your best interest to uh, nip that in the bud. And there's also a smaller chance, but potentially a chance that there was uh, an orc version of Cordelia who had a name and just said, no thanks, don't want to be a target for praise, you know, and moved on from that kind of thing. All we know is that we haven't had a full named orc, not that there isn't, that no orc had the potential for one. Also, the term greenskin, uh, just, do we know, does that only refer to orcs? Because in some uh, other properties, it refers to orcs and goblins collectively. Is that the case here? Do we? Do you recall? I believe it refers to both. In that I'm case, hoping for confirmation. Right. In that case, uh, I think it's a bold claim to say that there are no goblins with names. There's no way that a goblin with a name would be like running around on the surface and announcing that fact. You know, goblins are one of a variety of species found in creation. As a group, they are sometimes referred to collectively as the tribes, together with the orcs and possibly ogres. They are known as greenskins. That's from right. uh, the wiki, which we all know EE personally wrote and has nothing wrong at all, ever. <laughs> okay. You say all that, and you're right to hesitate, but in fact, your hesitation is confirmed later on during the Warlord arc, because when it comes time for Hakram to vie for and claim the mantle, he becomes aware of a very distant, very quiet claim to the name that has been unpressed. Uh, not exactly Cordelia mirroring, but Cordelia-like situation, because Grem One-Eye, who is Grem, has that opportunity, has that pathway waiting for him, even now, in his retirement and sequestration. And I just think that's so cool. We've got a warlord waiting in the wings, who remains loyal to Black, unlike, you know, traitorous Hakram, who abandons Catherine and everything he once stood for. Oof. Hoping not to get hate mail on that throwaway line but this is a really cool thing because this is huge the first one in so long this amazing this big this great and Catherine immediately starts thinking the political ramifications of this alone went way above my head which, which is right there's a huge deal but come on you really start thinking of that right away you're you're well suited to your position cat she is well suited to come up with that yeah it's i don't know i were it me and my friend, I, I think my first response would be, oh, cool, one of my friends is doing a unique, groundbreaking thing. This is fantastic. And Kat is, oh, no, the political ramifications might cause some real problems. She's right, of course. Uh, but she goes on to uh, think a little bit about some of the lessons in name lore Black has given her. Uh, she says, Black always said that names were a reflection of the people they sprang from. Was something changing with the orcs, or was this about my own burgeoning influence? In short, yeah, yes, correct, both. It, the there's a lot going on here, and you know we'll dig a lot more into the orcs as we get a culture of orcs on screen rather than orcs who have been fully brought into the legions. But there's a lot going on. There's a lot to look into here. 
also cat has a lot of influence on price very rapidly and is an outsider she's going to cause changes absolutely but those things change many things are still at this point the same and some things will always be the same we get to meet warlock and before we get to see him but once he's within earshot he hears that his son is giving a somewhat detailed casually detailed description of the project that the pig embodies to Catherine and not unkindly the warlock says she's not a practitioner masego your babble is wasted on her the warlock's voice interrupted fondly as we stepped into the workshop and i love this he's got an awareness that his son lacks the adverb he the adverb used here he says fondly he's not chastising stop bothering people no 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 oh you're affectionate you're you're passionate about our art and i really do appreciate that i'm just pulling you back from a position that i don't think is would leave people envying catherine and the self-deprecation there your babble is wasted on her you know the details of the thing we're dedicated to the that i am perhaps the greatest living practitioner of top three four five or something at least it's babble he's affable from before we even get to meet him he's and catherine will never take a liking to him right <laughs> it's a great introduction uh but yada yada warlock cat calls him among the five greatest mages in Colernia. and honestly she's right she's right but honestly that's what i want to talk about probably forever now does cat have a list in mind first of all do you think or does she just toss out a number here because i lean towards the latter i i think she's just tossing out a number it's like if i said oh yeah venus and serena williams are some of the top 10 greatest athletes in the world I, i do not have a list I'd Fair. say, well, there's that tennis guy and that hockey guy. Well, okay, Wayne Gretzky. I know the hockey guy's name. Uh, <laughs> he's Is he alive at the time of recording? As far as I know. Ideal. Uh, Unless he's very recently passed away. Yes. Kasparov, of course. Sure. That one, uh, uh, what's the one, the one cricket guy? What's his name? Not to get all freedom on you, but I am from the United States, so. Bradman. Donald Bradman. There you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Cat doesn't know, but we might. What? Let let's uh, let's let's spend some time on this at at the moment where she's speaking. So not counting uh, the eventual rise of Z's as a potential for the the top five. Oh yeah, right. At, at this moment, can we come up with a solid list at the risk of missing somebody obvious and having our listeners very upset with us? Well. Obviously not on her list, but if not belonging to the list yet, very shortly will be, is the current heiress, soon-to-be Diabolist Aquea Sahelian. Do you think she's, she do you think she has a claim to that now? Like she's incredibly talented. Like talented. I doubt like, it. Okay. I also but don't she think must be so. acknowledged. Sure. And she would not be on Catherine's list because Catherine doesn't know her to be a she may not know her to be a practitioner of magic at all. If we're including her as a as an acknowledgement, whether or not actually on the list, it is worth mentioning her father as well, who is, you know, a potential warlock candidate. Very true. Very true. Some of the obvious ones, like Dead King, pretty yeah, pretty solidly <laughs> locked down. Probably the number one slot at this point. Uh, I would be shocked for him not to be number one. I don't know that we can 
directly compare well, different, you know, because especially once you get names involved, there's some hyper specialization that goes on. But when you meet a caster in his own fortress with millennia right. of preparation, right? He could be the not weakest, but he could be a mediocre mage for most of those battles because it's stored up. He's got engines and plans and blah blah blah. Sure. And friends. Uh, okay, so assuming we've got Dead King and Warlock, I mean, do we? This one feels an edge case for how abnormal it is. But do we include Krios? The Titan? Yeah. Is that, a, is that fair to include on the list of the five greatest mages? I feel like that's unfair to include on similar grounds, so on a much greater scale, as it would be unfair to include Tariq. Because the Great Pilgrim's a wonderful spell user, magic user, but he's not a mage. Okay. So then, what do we do with like the Witch of the Woods? Is she? She can be a mage. Okay. <laughs> Despite the fact that her magic directly comes from the Titan, she counts. Like learns learned from him. Yeah, she's a witch. Okay, fair. Witch is a magic word. Is she powerful enough to maybe make our list? Like she does some pretty impressive things and is practicing Titan magic. But I also don't know where she is at this point. Fair. This is a few years before we meet her, I think. Fair. It. Yeah, that's true. Okay, uh, that's fair. Is Theodosian a mage? Like Kairos? I don't. Yeah. I don't think so. He's he's, he's more just... like yeah. He's more like uh, man. I cannot remember his name. Uh, the guy who gets like a whole chunk of chapters. Uh, the con- conjurer or something. Bumbling conjurer? No, 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 no. The real one. The one we rogue love. sorcerer. The rogue sorcerer. Yes. What's his first name? That's what I'm looking for here. Roland. Roland. Right, Roland. He. It, I don't think so for Kairos because I think he feels more like Roland. Obviously, Roland's very talented, but like, it's more about all the neat gizmos. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we don't. I'm trying to think who else we run into who would definitely be active at this point, who has a chance on this list. And I, I don't know that I. There are probably some people we haven't heard of. Like, there, who knows? Maybe there's some elf with a name who we never see, who's absurdly powerful, and I we can't count the fate. Yeah, there I might be think. a wizard hiding somewhere in the north or south or somewhere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever happened? Uh, I I don't know. I, I the number of big name mages increases as time goes on. Like we see a few more. Uh, but Scorched Apostate isn't in business right now, even though he does no. Blessed Magecraft for half a chapter. Um, poor boy. Can we divert our episode to just lament the Scorched Apostate? Uh. <laughs> we'll just get to it in a few weeks. Um, oh, is... Uh, I can't think of her name, but the person who becomes like the Archmage eventually, is she around oh. at this point? No, she can't be, right? Because doesn't she apprentice, apprentice for a while? Yeah, yeah, so she's, yeah. she can't be it. Eventually, she probably has a claim to being on the list, but right now, no. Wasser does not have much in the way of major mages. No. The pawn? Is that... That's who it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The dwarf magics don't count to me. Yeah. Like, we could argue for, like, Rumena, but I don't think the knight counts. Rumena, Rumena, Rumena. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I, I think I think we start crossing lines if we bring in things that are so different than the magic we're familiar with, like knight or fey magic. Like it's and I think the, same. the blood can count, but they're not. They're they're just, they're just Levantine, Levantine. They're just 
they, they, let's not pay them any mind. It's the Dominion. Sure, sure, sure. There are two reasons to pay attention to them, and I don't think they're courting yet, so I don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think they're oh, courting yet. They three are definitely reasons. Not. The Barrow Sword. Okay. Oh, I can't wait till we get to talk about him. We'll wait. We'll wait just a couple of weeks. <laughs> True. I'm. I'm literally scrolling through a list of names right now. <laughs> There's. Uh, I don't know that. Nah, that can't count. Like I'm. I'm just looking at magic sounding names. Like we've got the Hedge Wizard who goes toe to toe briefly with the Warlock, but there's that's more of a versatility thing than a raw power thing. So I don't think that counts. Oh, isn't somewhere in this book? I think there's a bumbling conjurer. Oh yeah, good point. Speaking of uh, versatility rather than power. And versatility also needs to be in quotation marks, I think. I know that because of the bumbling, sometimes it actually turns out to be the long end. But what a short end of the stick for names do you have to have to be a bumbling? Honestly, that's <laughs> so rough. Like, there's one thing to be an untalented mage who struggles through some things and sometimes gets lucky and then there's one there's another for it to be enshrined into your very identity to where people know you as the bumbling conjurer woof always send the comic relief in first now do we count the uh the horned lord that cat runs into the the that's sort of hanging out in keter i'm going to say no because it's not an independent entity at this point sure okay and also Frankly, he's got one trick that's incredibly powerful, but one trick. I don't know that that puts him on the same level as, like, Warlock. Amazing creature, though. Oh, yeah. I love the Ratlings. One day when I speak to EE, e., I'm going to ask him about them. <laughs> Sounds good. I Okay, so is that... I don't know. I don't know that we hit five, but I think we hit all the major folks. That we know about, yeah. That we know about. Uh, listener, if you... I'm up with a solid list that uh, makes ours look very bad. Uh, couch your words and say it politely, but let us know. Uh, you can do so by emailing us at thelongprice at gmail.com or, you know, chat with us on the subreddit or through the Discord. Lots of ways to reach out to us. We'd love to hear about this, these lists if you have uh, <laughs> a very good list or somebody that we forgot about. That would be wonderful. If it hasn't collapsed by the time this episode goes out, we're also on Twitter at the Long Price. Yeah, I felt nervous about mentioning that one because who knows? But fair. So uh, you want to get back to the chapter, or uh, let's, let's move from theorizing to sermonizing? Because Catherine tells us that if the preaching in the House of Light was any indication, the personal workshop of the Warlock would be filled to the brim with demons and other various blasphemies. And the thing is, we've been to the Tower. And it's not filled to the brim with demons. There are perhaps two places in the books that are filled to the brim with demons. And that would be Wolof. So thankfully, we don't, we don't encounter them. But I, I just know. I just right. know. It, it, it's demons all the way down. And then, <laughs> briefly, Arsenal. Poor, poor Hopper. Oh, boy. Uh, yep, that's a rough one right there. Yeah, oh, they survive. Also, uh, Zizu's arm. Is that to the brim? I thought that was just a drop of demon. I feel like for a human's arm, that's to the brim. I mean, and you know Masega will agree with me here. We need to do some testing to be sure. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Uh, but let's move away from minor monstrosity and move mm -hmm. to incarnate, embodied, unspeakable monstrosity. They get into the workshop and we hear, 
And so we finally meet Catherine Foundling. The sovereign of the red skies smiled. One, very friendly opening. I'm sure they'll have a rich and mutually respectful relationship. Two, how many people smile when they see Catherine? Like, in the entire series. Especially for the first time. This is... Hmm. And smile warmly, too. This isn't, ah, Catherine Foundling, you've walked into my... No, 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 this is just... I mean, hey, her... Her response to it is to blush. So, yeah, this is how a, this could is, you not? This is a good kind of smile. <laughs> I don't want to continue in my idiom here, but daddy, though. Honestly, it's yeah. Uh, there are people who offer like a polite smile. I'm sure, and it's not described. But by the time her name, her reputation gets out there, a, a genuine smile upon seeing her is probably not the average response. You're right. I am curious a little bit about the culture of smiling in all the places, which where will surely vary in Colernia, because I am a U.S. American. I am from what is arguably the smiliest place on Earth, not in terms of we're the happiest place on Earth, because the Lord knows that's not the case, but rather it's a fundamental of politeness here. If you are checking out at a store, you and the clerk smile as you greet one another, because anything else would be actively hostile. When you pass somebody in the street, if you meet eyes, if you acknowledge each other, you smile in the process. Because what, are you about to mug them? No, you're on the same team, smile. And that varies dramatically, even in relatively culturally similar places. My greatest experience is, of course, German, but takes a while every time i'm in germany for a while to adjust to the way smiling is used differently and it feels to a to a u.s american viewpoint very cold where it isn't because it's just a different culture of smiling there are places in the world where smiling can be seen as suspicious in casual or business-like setup because what are you doing and here he's smiling to meet her i wonder what degree of affable affection that's showing but i would blush too what if hmm? what if the case is that it's very like midwest white american and that the smile he's giving is that one where you sort of just like dimple the ends of your mouth into your cheeks a little bit and you know i'm acknowledging you but i'm not actually happy and i don't want to be weird about this you know the, the like young white man smile of acknowledgement i what if he's doing that at her and that makes her blush it's a uh... Maybe a little hashtag cringe. But even with just that, look at this description of him and tell me you wouldn't blush. Fair, 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 fair. I could have compared the man to the fisherman boys I'd known in lore, and the way living in the water had granted them a swimmer's physique. But there was nothing boyish about the warlock. His hair was cut short and showed some streaks of silver, though not as many as his close-cropped salt-and-pepper beard. The combination made him look rather distinguished in an older man sort of way. His robes were a tasteful shade of burgundy trimmed with gold, tightened at the waist by a belt of soft leather in a way that showed off the broadness of his chest and shoulders. Don't gawk, Catherine. He's at least thrice your age and plays for the other side anyway. That said, I could definitely see how the calamity should talk an incubus into marriage, which I don't think is how it actually worked or works, but good for the incubus. Not not really thinking about the details right now. She's <laughs> she's a little, uh, a little dumbfounded. Also, I adore that he's wearing a burgundy rolled robe trimmed in gold, and his son is wearing gray with an apron, like a leather apron. 
That's fantastic. The warlock knows what he's about, and Z's doesn't care. And they're mutually respectful about it. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I think it would be very easy. Again, this is one of the most well-functioning families we see. We see trouble in the relationship later on, but that doesn't mean it's a dysfunctional family. There's a very successful family unit from everything we see and there are so many ways where it could have gone so wrong that you could tell stories about it because oh i don't understand my son he doesn't understand me he's doing social things wrong that's fundamentally obvious to me and where i get some of my self-esteem and sense of self out of no it's well you're like that i'm like this when do you magic together cool it, it's, it's also great. none of the you're not my real dad or what have you because right those are his real dads absolutely and yeah this this story does not shy away from the fact that hey the people that are in your family that raise you are your parents like that that's what matters here it, it makes a bold stance of your family as your family right exactly <laughs> there's no, there's no uh no dancing around that for sure and i mean the the key thing is there that you mentioned though is clearly the mutual respect there i mean love as well like they love each other obviously they're they're a family um but they they respect each other a lot and despite the fact that the warlock doesn't like catherine i mean at this point he probably is pretty neutral on her but doesn't like catherine throughout most of the story he's generally a pretty respectful guy like the only people he doesn't seem to respect are mages who aren't who don't take it as seriously as he does I think, uh, or maybe I'm just reading into uh, his son a bit much. But uh, you know, Hawkram shows up here, and despite Hawkram not having Catherine's name or rank or relationship to Black, he's still very respectful of uh, of this basically no name guy following around the squire. Well, you say no name, and uh, well, <laughs> sure. he greets Catherine first. Catherine manages to cough out a Lord Warlock, well met, which, amazing. But when she introduces her adjutant, okay, everything's going in a very formal and polite order. This is how it's done, by rank. The Calamity cocks his head to the side, examines the orc, and then begins speaking Kharthum to him. Howling wolves? On my mother's side, Hakram acknowledged in the same language. Weeping stone on my father's. Warlock grinned, displaying a set of remarkably white teeth. They won't be able to sweep you under the rug if you have kinship in Grem's clan. Someone in Otter is going to have a fit when word spreads. Okay, we're about to find out that Hakram really is definitely absolutely nursing a name. Not just an apprentice singing this, but the Warlock, great. More importantly, though, he sees Hakram, greets him in his language, and I'm under the impression that in this world, still to this point, the orcs are going to speak Kharthum. It's not a, oh, look, I see someone who looks vaguely, insert large area of the world here. I will speak to them in the one language from the area I know, because obviously they must speak it. No, the orcs do speak Kharthum, I think. It doesn't seem a essentializing thing, but rather a politeness. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes him and his clan, which shows honest interest in, honest respect for, the culture. He treats the orc fully as a person, which of course, Black's best friend is gonna. They're both chill. But how nice. I like it. Yeah, I mean, this comes up a lot, but with really one exception, the Calamities are a likable bunch. They're just like 
you know, they're villains and they do atrocities, yada, yada, whatever. They're good people, you know? They're, they're nice people to know. As long as you don't capitalize the wrong letter in good, yes. Right, right, or right. Or actually any letter. I mean, if you capitalize an O, I wouldn't... I'd just be confused. I would capitalize the first O and the D, because we're doing that now. Oh, okay. Uh, but also, is clanship among the orcs then matrilineal? Because... Hakram is howling wolves on his mother's side, weeping stone on his father's. I know the howling wolves. We hear about them a lot. That's Grem's clan. That's Hakram's clan. That's the one that comes up. I'm sure I've seen the words weeping stone before, but looking at it here, it, it could have been anything. I, I would not have noticed it being wrong if it had instead been mossy stone or burning shield or withered halberd. Mm -hmm. I'd comment on withered halberd, but is it matrilineal? I don't know. It, I mean, it could just, it could very well just be a, I don't know, shared lineage. You know, he, he doesn't say, yes, I'm howling wolves. My, my father was weeping stone though, or anything. It's on my mother's side, I'm howling wolves on my father's side. I'm weeping stone. You know, it could be that you're both and it boils down to where you end up living and who you associate with. I'm not sure to do with relative power of the clans because howling wolves is definitely a more important clan and maybe the father either the father was absorbed into the larger clan or simply you know you're born from two clans but you've got to claim one do you want the good clan or the weak little loser clan fair i i don't know if we get any more information on how that works when we get to the warlord arc we'll uh we'll look at that and we'll see i'm sure there's a few more details there or let me rephrase that i hope there's a few more details there also it's a good arc so i'm looking forward oh, to it well yes of course oh wait hold on you're looking forward to an arc in pgte that's so weird most of them you know take or leave but i kid they're all wonderful and i'm looking forward to everything i really can't say with the exception of no they're all every single one. Oh yeah good job ee Double thumbs up. Actually, one thumb up because my other hand is pressing my record button. Um, Warlock's kind of happy that it's going to cause trouble in Otter because the Calamities don't like the Praising Nobility. Catherine says she's trying to keep the word unspread for a while. She actually she says we were hoping to keep the word unspread for a little while. But you know what? She's in position to say that because she's in charge. And the Warlock, continuing to be affable and nice, says, Ah, youth. It'll get out, squire. It always does. And the tighter you grasp it between your fingers, the more violently it will burst out. He's giving advice. To which Catherine squares her jaw and prepares herself for an argument with a man best known for incinerating the better part of a thousand men on the fields of Strigé. Still, there was nothing for it. I wasn't going to allow Hakram to be a target, not before we had a better idea of what his situation involved and who would be coming after him. Calm down! He, he gave you one piece of advice? Yeah, he... Might have been a little dismissive of your thoughts because you're just a child, but he's helping you out here. He, he did not attack you. Why do you hate him so much? Yeah, reading what he says, I can see how if you are a paranoid, suspicious kind of person, you could take that as a threat or uh, the hint of blackmail, maybe even. But like a normal person hearing that would say, oh, you know, do you think there's anything we can do to slow the spread or you know, thanks for the advice, or nod and move on. You know, there's just so many responses to that, that with this warning, this foretelling, then she goes for aggression. Oh, Catherine. 
It's even more wild to me, though, how determined she is to hate him. Keep in mind that, unfair as it is, but it is human nature, he is, not just in general, but to her, pretty hot. And though it's not a good thing, the more attractive someone is, the more willing we are to believe them. Pretty privilege is real, but there's also, like, what? Pretty trustworthiness? Mm -hmm. If a handsome person tells you something, you're more likely to believe it. Why are you getting hostile? Like, I'm just saying he could step on me and I wouldn't be mad at him. Especially since his response to her growing anger is to, oh, don't worry, I won't tell anybody, just kind of meant as a warning. And she doesn't, you know, stag in relief or nod her head in acknowledgement of how she misinterpreted it, but instead frowns and says, could have made that a little clearer. <laughs> this is excessive and it's great. Maybe, hold on. We get a lot of, we talked a lot about how these two don't like each other. Is there a chance that maybe Warlock actually doesn't like Cat because of this awful first impression? And that's the entirety of the issue. He makes all this, oh, you know, the your relationship with Black and all, what you're doing to praise all that, yada, yada, yada. But really, he just like, she was rude to me once. But I wouldn't blame him. She's very rude. For somebody who's really friendly and hot and thus accustomed to people liking him because he's so likable. That actually seems really believable. Because I don't mean to compare myself to the Warlock by any means. I am not such a unique glory. But I am tragically one of those people who is popular in high school, who has always gotten along well with everybody around me all the time my entire life. And I gotta say, even in my much lesser position, it's disconcerting if somebody doesn't take to me. Like, why are you being mean to me? <laughs> You're supposed to like me. Which, of course, is unreasonable. But... Sure. But he... He handles it well. And you know what? Good on him. Oh, he's mature about everything, their entire relationship, even when he's putting down death threats. It is really toxic to make other people responsible for your reactions to them, Catherine. Uh, <laughs> but when Catherine complains that he could make it a little clearer, Masego snorts from the other side of the room where he was fitting in a new lock. This coming from a pupil of Uncle Amadeus. The man can't pass a dish without turning it into something ominously cryptic. And yes, he's right. Haha, drama, blah, blah, blah. My point here is just, that's so cute. Uncle Amadeus, and he talks about the man passing a dish, which is such a delightfully domestic, familial thing. Like, in our lives, we eat together with a lot of people, sure. Mm -hmm. But where we fully voluntarily eat with people is such a delightfully intimate thing. That's so cute. That's so cute. They're, they're his Uncle Amadeus. Her future father is his current uncle. <laughs> I mean, every time that comes up, and it usually comes from Z's compared to anybody else, the the relationship, the Uncle Amadeus and the aunties and all, it, it's wonderful. I, It's so sweet. And everybody involved is horrifically powerful and a monster to literally everybody else. And to themselves, frankly. It's great. We also find out that uh, Warlock says that Black is was like that when he was 16, uh, that Ranger used to throw cutlery at him every time he got too dramatic. First note, how is he alive if Ranger was throwing cutlery at him? Thank you. <laughs> Second note, I adore that young Black here, that young Maddie was made of drama, that he was, it was frequent enough that there was a habit around it. Like he's a dramatic guy because he has to be for his health, drama the story 16 is a dramatic age 
I mean that, yes. But drama and the story are like what he has built his entire career on and his life on and he has to wield them or die, literally. But at 16, the fact that he's just like this dramatic, probably brooding little boy who's just, you know, what, three feet tall at that point and skulking. I love it. It's so great. What a character. So they get down to business Mm -hmm. and Catherine is very lightly, diplomatically, very hostile. She says, I'm guessing this about the city. Sorry, she does not say. She grunts. I'm guessing this about the situation in the city. As it happens, I had a few questions myself about your involvement or lack thereof, I added silently. Like, yeah. that, it's, it's very reasonable to wonder why he hasn't been acting more. But you could ask that directly and politely. But, ugh, this is... I have been told that when I was very young, we possessed a dog who, from the instant they met, was hateful, mortally hateful, of the dog across the street. That kind of situation where... If they see they have the chance to get at each other, they will run to each other and try to tear out their throats from the first with no cause. And Catherine seems to be nearly there. And I don't get it. I understand being disconcerted at his lack of involvement. I understand things aren't what you like. I understand that you don't like him telling you that the name's going to get out. But chill. And that kind of colors this entire conversation. The warlock, the calamity here, the incredibly powerful top five mage is running through some of the information he has, briefing Catherine on the on the status in the city from a named point of view rather than a practical, like, on-the-ground military point of view. Great stuff to have. An incredibly important conversation. And she's doubtful. She's mistrustful. She's grumpy about every bit of this. Like, almost sarcastic about it. He tells her that there's at least four heroes. And she's, her response is, uh, a messenger told me there was less. Z's chimes in with, oh, the general doesn't know. And Kat is, rather than saying, what's going on, there's a, I'm sure there's a good reason for that. That's not a polite way to ask that question. Uh, so the warlock gives a little information. Hey, the general's meetings aren't great. A lot of information getting out. We find out that the warlock uh, hasn't been able to locate these heroes, despite being, you know, the warlock and kind of a master of scrying. Uh and it turns out that the bumbling conjurer is stymieing the warlock uh, because he accidentally struck a gold. He botched his defensive wards so thoroughly that rather than blocking standard scrying and revealing an area that the warlock could sort of home in on by examining the negative area, uh, whoops, redirected the divination somewhere else entirely. The Bumbling Conjurer is fantastic. It's a it's a trope that is it can be annoying to read sometimes, but used here where everybody's aware of how annoying it is, wonderful. I love the Bumbling Conjurer as he relates to the Warlock. Their entire arc is pretty short, pretty tidy, ends exactly how it should. It's great. And Catherine does react successfully, though, because you say a Bumbling Conjurer trope can be rough, and her response is, erg those. You are... G-H, erg. At least bards were funny, which is very true and doesn't at all prove wrong. The bumbling types attracted failure like honey did flies, only ever managing to survive by the skin of their teeth with a heavy dose of luck. I love how she talks, because this is the case, as though she is a new student of a subject and has managed to just learn enough to have an opinion about everything and thinks she knows exactly how it is. Ugh. 
the this, bumbling types. You know exactly how they are. Black told me once, so I will regurgitate the opinion. I, I am yep. dunning Kruger. This is exactly how that reads. I love that comparison. The just came out of my 101 class, learned a couple new inform- bits of information, and I'm going to be an expert to anybody who isn't at my level yet. Wonderful. It's fantastic. The problem with that level of expertise is if you actually wield it for five minutes, everyone's at your level because that's all you had. Yep. So Catherine wants to insult the warlock, but is going to do her best not to. And will tell us about that directly after failing to not. So we have a band of heroes prowling about summer home with impunity. It seems to me that if you'd left the bastion, you might have managed to thin them out a bit. That was as close to outright asking the warlock why he'd been holed up in his tower all this time while the city went to the dogs as I was willing to go for now. Cat, you're you're insulting the sovereign of the red skies to his face in his house. He probably has a good answer. He's the smartest man you've ever met. He's the, he's the most educated man you've ever met. Top five smartest. Okay, so... Top five smartest that she's met. Warlock and Black, Militia. Oh, uh, Maybe. Nilin. Uh, yep, with the bridges. And Robert. Mm-hmm. And Robert, yeah. I, I was going there, too. <laughs> Perfect. Juniper is in the top ten. Aquia is in the top ten, but... Yeah, yeah Jun- Juniper is like a, a honorable mention for sure in the top five. Like, once... Within a few chapters, and we, when we don't have to worry about Nilin anymore, Juniper gets in there. We don't have to worry about him anymore? Is he going to re- retire to a farm up north? So... The warlock, uh, <laughs> moving on, the warlock uh, accuses Cat of thinking like a general rather than, you know, a named individual, somebody with a role, uh, and says, yeah, there's all these things going on, but it's important to remember the lone swordsman is not a killer. The lone swordsman is a killer, not a strategist. And I have to say, the warlock has said a lot of great things so far. Probably the most accurate thing he said so far it, that we've seen. The lone swordsman is not a thinking man. <laughs> <laughs> He's a guy with a big sword and an even bigger temper, an e- even bigger angst-fueled temper, I think, is what we'll stick with. Don't don't try to read into his schemes. He's just out here chopping people. So anyway, I just start chopping? Exactly. That's the lone swordsman is Danny DeVito, I guess. Hmm. Danny I don't DeVito like that. would never play anyone no. that nasty. Right, exactly. You're right. My apologies. When they make the uh, live-action version of the story, who should Danny DeVito play? Cat? Uh, I was thinking Kairos, but... Oh, Black. They're both short. They're both short kings. <laughs> Actually, though. And we know Danny DeVito does is an excellent mentor from Disney's Hercules. Sorry, from the animated Hercules. Thank you. Uh, but speaking of the warlock saying very true things in very few words, he says, think like what you actually are. Or, he said, you're thinking like a general. The lone swordsman is a killer, not a strategist. Think like what you actually are, the squire. And actually, though, she actually is actually the squire in all actuality. Like, metaphysically, diegetically, being the squire is the most fundamental part of her being. I just think that's cool. I mean, yeah, it it needs to color everything she does, because we've seen what happens if you don't act like your name wants you to act and i know that the once is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence and uh, how much motive does a name have but you know what i mean absolutely and it does mean you have to think in name terms and when she does she realizes that why the names would be here 
It's because the names are looking for a name. Do you recall last chapter when I made a comment about Cat realizing why the heroes were in town and it was because they were hunting a calamity? I've heard such a thing. So Cat here spends a few moments in thought after some pretty pointed leading questions from Warlock and then has the realization, you think they're after you. She had that thought, you know, in our terms a week ago, but in her terms, like 10 minutes ago... (laughs) Yeah, Kat, you, you got it. I'm glad you worked your way back to that. The guy that goes around chopping up the big, bad, evil things, because that's his whole motif, is here to chop up a calamity. Absolutely. Thankfully, Warlock will never die. But hmm. Catherine realizes that's why he's been chopping up all the officers so terribly, both for the attention and for the information he might carve out of them. Boo. Yeah, boo. He's terrible. And Catherine's clear about that. And the apprentice is a little surprised. He says, I did not expect you to take such a dim view of the Lone Swordsman's actions. She thinks he means the Callowin thing. And he's like, no, no, no. The Lone, Swordsman, the Lone Swordsman's actions, while brutal, are not something I'd consider entirely unjustified. Catherine takes the simple way out. The Kantian categorical imperative, if you will. He's assassinating and torturing people, apprentice. That's not exactly classic heroics. And Masego takes a more nuanced view than even Immanuel Kant, famously the greatest thinker of all time. This is a great joke, as is his philosophy. I repeat, boo. He's targeting military personnel only, Masego noted. And while I suppose torture is somewhat reprehensible, I raised an eyebrow at the somewhat, given that the Empire employs it as an information extraction method itself, it's hard to throw stones on the subject. Using all means available to resist a foreign occupation isn't something I'd call villainous. And if I may, for the first time, border on the political, moral, philosophical here, in my life, not just on this podcast, I've never said anything ever. Nothing controversial, right, go ahead. As an avowed pacifist, I gotta say, seeing violence perpetrated upon those who claim monopoly on the violence, seeing hostilities enacted on those who maintain control through constant utilization of hostilities. I have never felt as though I were in a position to critique that, where I might not opt for pronounced methods in a fight for freedom. How on earth could I tell those who are who have their freedom denied them that they lack that right? And Masego, he gets it, even though he is not just the oppressor, not just a beneficiary of the oppressor class, but a born and bred member of the oppressor class. But you have to remember, Billiam is killing some of those people, so who's the real oppressor class? Why don't we just kill Bill and the Precy? Hey, now there's an idea. Kat, what do you think? Read on to find out more. Fortunately, this discussion about who the real oppressor is is cut short by the The real oppressor the real oppressor yes and the unbelievably wise warlock (laughs) when he delivers the line well i'm sure hearing two teenagers debating the ins and outs of morality would be a fascinating experience there are other priorities at play and uh, yes we've said things like this before of course their age doesn't preclude them from having actual thoughts on the matter and they're still people and but yeah i don't want to sit around and listen to two teenagers try to debate whether torture is okay that sounds awful he's right good on him there's still people but 
is the exact <laughs> view I take of everyone under the age of 25. Yeah. We need to stop infantilizing even children. Children are one of the most oppressed classes in our society and most, if not all, of the world. Mm-hmm. They can't enjoy total independence. They can't enjoy total freedom because they don't have the ability to use it. But they're people, not objects or pets. But that all said, but teenagers are the number one part of this, though. No, actually, teenagers are an issue, but it's a 22, 23-year-olds who... Because then they're sure they're adults, and that's just... I need my space. I've taught enough of them in my day. <laughs> sure. It's re- They're very cute. They are so cute. But in the same way that a four-year-old is. We didn't alienate our audience, but I don't... People that age aren't old enough to read a book like this or listen to a podcast, right? That's still two un- years. If you're under the age of, what, five or 25, wherever we want to actually draw the line... Yeah. You're more than welcome to listen along and offer your comments and, you know, we value you as people. I don't know that I could have said that in a more condescending tone, but I think I'll stand by it. <laughs> but if you are under the age of 25 and you write into the podcast, please include parental permission for this or we won't be able to reply mm, to you for fear right. of... We'll, we'll get permission slips out for everybody. And if your naturally bestowed parents aren't good enough, store-bought's fine. Or just, you know another listener of the podcast who's a little older that's also cool yeah hey so uh how much of that is getting cut so that we're not actually alienating probably a large portion of our audience because let's be real a lot of them are gonna be... Be... <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i mean people who are under 25 are notoriously volatile i mean true but they're not listening they're just watching bluey okay fair 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 uh but they realize that the attack is going to come on the palace because Catherine's going to be dining with the general, and they'll have two generals and a no-named, also an unknown-named, there. Of course, the attack's coming tonight. And the general with Afalabi. And I'm sorry, change of subject, but remember last week we were uh, talking about Nilan and his architectural interest? Yeah. Well, here Catherine rubs the bridge of her nose. <laughs> oh, oh man, I really thought we had a great point coming, and instead we had the best point we've made so far this episode, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, she ends the chapter saying, what did it say about me that every time I went to a dinner party, it was with the intent of getting someone stabbed, play laugh track. That was not an editor's <laughs> note, editor's note. And the thing is, Catherine, stabbing was your inciting incident. You were, a, yeah, I'm going to put it this way because it's very nasty. I don't mean to minimize it, but I want to be soft in my speaking of it. You were accosted in an alley and you were saved and able to do some stabbings to get your way out and to introduce yourself to your new life. You started your name thing by getting stabbed. Stabbing will not be able to ever leave your story because it's how your story begins and how it continues. You're trapped. Congrats. She's, I mean, basically the warden of stabs. On that note, though, I think we will have to call Uh. it for today (laughs) because that is all the time we have. Oh, good. Uh, Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss Magical Theory Feeling Leery and Bardic Query Wade in Their Blood Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic erratas, a practical guide 
to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the Upgraph was Honor Guard by DS Technician. Bardic Bard song was Gabriel Acoustic Folk Guitar by Kazoom. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by writing their stories and songs free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed? by the urge to correct our errors, email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one Patreon-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter six, Rapport. <laughs>